If you would please turn to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6. I will be reading verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. There's a reason why I only read part of verse 37 this morning, when really the whole unit of Jesus' thought goes down to at least verse 42. And the reason is because of the popularity of this particular saying of Jesus in our culture. Judge not lest you be judged. And what I want to do this morning is to address the ubiquitous, I mean just everywhere, misunderstanding, misinterpretation of these words by non-Christians. And sadly, by many Christians. Then next week, we'll come back and we'll see the whole unit together and I'll go through my normal Uh, exposition of the text as a whole as Jesus unfolds it more clearly of what he means. But this morning, my main concern is to say and to show what these words do not mean. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, I pray that what I do say about your words, about what they do not mean, I pray that you protect me from communicating wrongly and wrong doctrine. I fear not holding to your words, particularly in front of people. So give us minds to think. Give us hearts to embrace the truth of your wonderful sermon on the plain. In your precious name, amen. Uh, We Christians are known for having our favorite verses or verse in the Bible. Romans 8.32, it's one of mine. Or John 3.16, The stunning thing is that myriads of non-Christian people have their favorite verse in the Bible. And it is chapter 6, verse 37 of Luke. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Even even though many of these people have never read the Bible, they've never read the context for those particular words, many of them don't know any other verse in the Bible, but they know this one, particularly if you say something about their lifestyle, their decisions, their beliefs and belief systems, They'll say, well, didn't Jesus say, you're not supposed to judge me, or you'll be judged. I do not know of another passage in Scripture that has been so constantly abused and misunderstood and misapplied as this one. Non-Christians and many Christians use Jesus' words here in order to denounce Anybody who dares to criticize another person's actions, lifestyle, belief, doctrines, sins, shortcomings. In our day and age, a person in our culture, only with bravery do they dare to criticize or speak against homosexual 
activity. Or heterosexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. Of adultery. Of gossip. Of abortion. Of the deception of the great world religions. When a person dares to do that in the context of our culture today, multitudes of people will rise up in anger and often say, Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. In my reading this week, I ran across this story from a Christian man who wrote, quote, I once served on a jury with a woman who told us after hours of deliberation that she could never vote to convict the woman on trial, even though she was clearly guilty, because the Bible says, judge not, lest you be judged. Now, what I want to get at first, before we get to the text and what it cannot mean, is that particularly in the 21st century American or Western world culture, there's something underneath this crazy thinking, these crazy types of interpretation of Jesus' words. It is this massive doctrine that is in the air we breathe, that has been for decades the purposeful indoctrination of our children growing up in the government school systems. That breeds this essentially within a person who is acting appropriately in society. That is this. People hate the idea now of right versus wrong of good versus evil, of absolute truth. No, it doesn't exist. In the culture of our elementary schools and our high schools and our universities and the culture of our TV sitcoms, our books, our movies, our music, is this so-called enlightened idea that there really is no such thing as truth that's out there, apart from what people feel or think for them is true. There is this idea that the old medieval thinking of absolute truth, this is morally right as opposed to morally wrong, that has gone the way of the dodo bird. It's gone extinct. It's the doctrine that there is no such thing as right or wrong. You're going to see the connection. Therefore, it is inappropriate for you, as a particular human being subjectively, to push what you think is right or wrong or judge another about right or wrong. See, in our culture, even to suggest that there is an absolute difference between good and evil, truth and falsehood, is to be viewed as some guy who just crawled out from under a rock after centuries and did not know that the intellectual elite have freed us from such bondage. This is where you get the crazy sayings about a, a young 16-year-old who might strap on a bomb and walk into a restaurant with babies and children and adults and grandparents and blow himself up and kill 23 people with him. And you'll get comments, well, you know, you may call it terrorism, but one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. There is a philosophy that is radically anti-God. Anti-Scripture in the air. 
26 years ago or so, Alan Bloom, a university professor, published his best-selling book, The Closing of the American Mind. Getting at this problem, and I'm going to tell you, we're 26 years down the road, and there are things happening in our society right now that were unimaginable in 1986 to most of us. You know, I try to tell the, the teenagers in my own family and in this church at times, like the other day, you don't understand how radically different everything is from when I was in high school in the 70s. We could not imagine the type of litigation and laws that people were trying to make and to enforce today, just 30 years ago. Professor Bloom opens up the book this way. There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes, or says he believes, that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. That anyone should regard the proposition, you know, that there's absolute truth, or that relativism is not true, that anyone should regard the proposition as not self-evident, astonishes them as though he were calling into question 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, that, he goes on, that this is a moral issue for students is revealed by the character of their response when they are challenged in the classroom. A combination of disbelief and indignation. They say stuff like, Are you an absolutist? The only alternative they know, uttered in the same tone as, Are you a monarchist? Or do you really believe in witches? When you contend that there's such a thing as objective, absolute truth. He goes on. The danger, the danger that they have been taught to fear from absolutism is not error, but it is intolerance. Relativism is necessary to openness. And this is the virtue the only virtue which all primary education for more than 50 years has dedicated itself to inculcating. Just stop. Don't miss it. The reason why in our culture right now the doctrine of openness to all lifestyles is so prevalent and it's an issue in the courts to make legal, homosexual, or same-sex marriage is because something has come prior to it. Relativism. It is the maidservant of openness. No such thing as truth. Your belief system works for you, good. Your lifestyle works for you, feels good, do it. He goes on, openness and the relativism that makes it the only plausible stance in the face of various claims to truth and various ways of life and kinds of human beings is the great insight of our times. The true believer in truth is the real danger. Last line. The point of all of this going on in our society, is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it is to not think that you are right at all. End quote. In other words, the God of our age, the idea that we are constantly told to bow down to in our culture is that there is no objective standards. Truth. 
There are no truths out there that are actually, objectively, apart from whether you feel or think or agree or not, that they're actually true as opposed to false. The one main idea we are to worship is openness. Non-judgmentalism. And there is a sin in this culture. The one sin that goes with it is this, that you would judge any other person's lifestyle, choices, actions, or belief systems is wrong. That's the one sin. Now, we could get into all the contradictions of relativism that are just so obvious and embedded in it, like there are no absolute truths except for the absolute truth. Okay, did you hear it? That there are no absolute truths. But that's not the point this morning. The point is to recognize the reality of it and that relativism has been embedded in the minds and the morals and even in the religions of people that hold to their the irrational idea that we are never to open our mouths and question or express an opinion on the behavior or the beliefs of other people. Or if we do, somehow you would be coming under the condemnation of Jesus' words. Judge not, lest you be judged. Condemn not, lest you be condemned. To many people's way of thinking, this verse demands that we never exercise moral discernment when we are evaluating another person. That we never actually evaluate other people at all. And that we certainly never evaluate differing beliefs systems and judge them as wrong. We are told we're, we're even hounded by the political correct spirit of our age to show complete, utter tolerance. Which means you're not really allowed to say they're wrong. Or that that expression of your sexuality is an expression of sinfulness that will be judged. See, it's as if millions of people within the church and outside the church have an idea that when they die, they'll stand before God sometime at Judgment Day and they'll be able to say, you know, Jesus said, judge not, you will not be judged. And so, I lived my life the way I thought best and... I believed things that I thought worked best for me to believe, but I obeyed Jesus. I didn't judge other people for their choices that may have been different, and I didn't condemn them, and so therefore, I'm okay. That thinking, that interpretation, that conclusion from Jesus' words, judge not lest you be judged, has nothing to do with the point or the purpose or the meaning of His words. So, this morning, what I want to do, I want to show that Jesus' commands to judge not, to condemn not, cannot be understood as meaning. Suspend your critical thinking in relation to other people's actions, choices, sins, their doctrines. Now, just pretend that there is no good, evil, true, 
false. You cannot interpret Jesus' words to mean that. He is not saying, suspend that faculty God gave you to discern between good, evil, right, wrong, moral, immoral. My argument or my proof for that contention now is twofold. First is the immediate context of Jesus' words. And then the second is the rest of the New Testament. So first, in the immediate context, remember, Jesus, they're on this large plateau and plain. This is the sermon on the plain that He began with the Beatitudes, Blessed are you. In that context come these words now, to judge not lest you be judged. All around, in the one sermon, Jesus knows what He's doing. Constantly in the other sayings of Jesus, in this sermon is the assumption that we will and we should use our moral compass, our reasoning faculties in order to make moral judgments about right and wrong and about ourselves and about other people. So, for instance, he starts off the sermon, how? Blessed are you who? And it's going to go really well for you. But, woe to you who? Okay, that's a judgment. Now you may say, okay, that's Jesus making a judgment. Okay, He can do it. But the reason He's making that judgment publicly in a sermon is so that we would hear it, agree with His judgment, thus making the same judgment, to know that there are two ways. The way of blessing, go that way. Or the way of curse and woe, you don't want to go that way. He wants us to hear what He's saying. Say, yes, very bad, very good. Choose the good. Okay. Also, just two verses before He says, do not judge. Jesus said, quote, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. There's a judgment. I mean, there's such a thing as a person is ungrateful. A person is evil. Now, he says that in the context, as we saw last week. He says it in order that we would make those judgments. In order that we would understand that person is evil has done me an evil, is my enemy. So now in that context of judging that He tells us to do, show mercy, love your enemy. Or Jesus makes a judgment between His disciples who have this change in their life and those whom He calls sinners. Meaning those who are not His disciples. In verse 33 where He says... Even sinners do the same. There's Jesus making a judgment again. And He expects us to understand the distinction, the judgment that He is making. He expects us to evaluate and to recognize faults and sins in other people and in ourselves. Look at verse 42. In the middle of it, he says, You hypocrite! There's a judgment. Whoa. You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Got to get it. Log and speck refer to sins or offenses that we human beings do. And he's saying there's a time to judge whether there's a speck in your brother's eye. After you take 
a big, huge problem out of your own. But you can't do that unless you make a judgment about the other. Now, real quickly, if we just flipped over to Matthew 7, where I'm going to go for a moment, because this is the parallel passage where, where Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, says, exact same thing, judge not, lest you be judged. Now, in Matthew's account, right after Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged, he says, quote, do not give to dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them under foot and turn and attack you. And then a few verses later, in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Think about it. It is impossible to obey Jesus' words there without making judgments. That, that, that person is a dog. This one's a pig. This teacher, I'm making it. Yep, you got it. I've been thinking about it. I'm making a judgment. I'm using my discerning powers to come up with this. That's a false prophet. I can see, kind of acts like a shepherd, dresses like a shepherd, sheep, however you want to do the metaphor, but inwardly is a ravenous wolf. Jesus is telling us to be able to say that. And you think about it, you can't make any of those judgments He tells us to make unless there are some kind of standards against which we are making the judgments. So, that's my first point. From the immediate context of the sermon, Jesus cannot be meaning never use your discerning faculty to evaluate others in their thinking, their doctrine, their action, etc. Cannot mean that. Now, I could just close the sermon, but I just want to, just, I am, I'm going to pound the point this morning. That's why we're only dealing with this one issue from this text. And that is, the rest of the New Testament just totally devastates the doctrine of many people within the church, much less outside of the church when it comes to their wrong interpretation of do not judge others. Now, trust me, I'm not going to read all the New Testament verses that deal with this issue. We would be here for a couple of hours. But, but I'm going to read fairly significantly a few of them. First, in Romans chapter 1, verses, start with verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Look, the New Testament is clear. He, he said, there are people who do not recognize the truth as truth. Nevertheless, it's true. They're suppressing that which is objectively true. In verse 25, he starts to unfold it. In other words, they, we sinners, have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and we worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Okay. At the end of Romans, in chapter 16, okay. Paul, you know Jesus' words, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. Well, he says this, starting verse 17 of chapter 16 of Romans, I appeal to you. Oh, now he's telling the whole church to do this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those people who cause divisions and create obstacles to the doctrine that you have been taught. You can't do that unless you know doctrine, 
you listen carefully to these divisive people who speak contrary things, and you make a judgment. That's a person Paul tells us to watch out for. Then he says this, as you do that, avoid them. Why? Because such persons, wow, Paul, here's another judgment, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. Wow. Did he break Jesus' command to not judge? Because he's making a judgment against professing Christians. And he's saying something radical. They do not serve Jesus. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul writes to the churches, but even if we or an angel from heaven, he's ready to judge angels, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one I already preached to you. Let him be damned to hell. Is Paul? That's what he means by let him be accursed. Is he breaking Jesus' words? Don't judge. In Philippians 3.2, Paul says to the church, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. If you're not willing... To have a grid in your head that says, good doer, I judge as evil doer, this command makes no sense. In Titus 3, verses 10 to 11, Paul writes, a person who stirs up division. Okay, okay. who are they? I don't know, I don't make any judgments. Well, you can't do this. But if you make judgments in your head. You're a thinking person. You're deciphering differences between those who are divisive and those who aren't. He says, but a person who stirs up division, this is how you do it. After warning him once, and then twice, after that, have nothing more to do with him. Wow. Knowing that such a person, here's a judgment, is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. The apostle of love writes in 1 John 4.1, Christian, do not believe every Spirit. Now, let's stop. In the context, he means, we can see this. What he means here in 1 John is, do not believe every professing Christian preacher. This is the context. Do not believe every spirit, Christian preacher, but what? Okay, as you hear them, judge. Actually, he didn't use that word, crino, judge. He said it this way. Test what they say. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, if you suspend critical discerning of right, wrong, truth, falsehood, making those judgments, you cannot obey that command. The Apostle of Love says in 2 John, Verses 9 to 10. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not remain in the teaching of Christ. He's got this idea of this objective teaching. That this is the truth as opposed to what others are saying. Anyone who, who does not remain in the teaching of Christ. Now, here's a judgment. That person does not have God. Whoever abides or remains in the teaching, this, here's another judgment, that person has both the Father and the Son. 
So church, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, you've got you to judge whether it's that teaching or not, then do not receive him into your house and give him no greeting. I've got two more. Okay, just approach it this way with the red letters in our Bible. Jesus' statements in the Gospels. Okay, Jesus, you told us, judge not, lest you be, be judged. But you then went on in Matthew 18 to instruct us how to live in local churches. When you said, starting with verse 15, if your brother sins against you, I never know if he ever sins against me because I'm not making judgments. You you can't know that unless you've made a judgment. I've been sinning. You might be wrong, and you might be right, but you still have to make a judgment. And Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, then go and tell him his fault between just between you and him. This means a Christian brother or sister. And Jesus goes on. If that fellow Christian listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you in order that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it before the entire congregation. Church. How do you do that without making judgment? And if he refuses to listen even to the whole church, then let him be to you a non-believer. A Gentile and a tax collector. That's what he means. Now, you have to be able to understand that when Jesus says, judge not, he does not mean judge in the same way he means here, judge until your brother has fallen. This is life. That's how language works. I was trying to explain this to the teenagers on, on Friday a lot. You know, does God love everybody? Does He just love believers? Love well, yes, He does. Depends. But you got to define love, and He loves everybody in one way, and in, in, in such a way that He does not uh, love the unbeliever like He loves the bride of Christ. And you can just see the stuff in Scripture. So now, so here's Jesus. Judge not, and then make all these kinds of judgments together. And and one more. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, fleshes out Jesus' words in the letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5. When he writes to the church, quote, starting with verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, church, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, that a man is sleeping with his dad's wife. Now, listen to Paul. Paul calls them arrogant as a church. Not because they judged. Because they refused to judge. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Excommunicated from the church. He goes on. For though I'm absent in body, Corinth, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I, Paul, have already pronounced judgment. Same word Jesus uses. Crino. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. 
When you are assembled, here's his instruction, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you and with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, so that repentance would come and he be restored. Now also, in 1 Corinthians 5 then, Paul goes on and he says this. But now, church, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Meaning, those who bear the name, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm in the church. Okay, He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name Christian if he is, and what he means here, just real quickly, he means unrepentant, ongoing lifestyle, and, and just a, no repentance about it when he says this. So a Christian who calls himself a Christian, he says, stop associating with them. That is, those who are guilty in their lifestyle unrepentantly of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders outside the church? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Stunning. He's talking to the whole congregation, not just the leadership. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 24, Do not judge. By appearance. Okay, then it's stunning. Then it's stunning. But judge with right judgment. I think I made my point. And so here it is summarized again. We need to understand that, let me just say this first. Not only can we as human beings not help but make judgments? It's impossible not to in life. Okay, you know, let me stop for a minute. Even those who preach and hold to and want to indoctrinate our culture with moral relativism, no such thing as absolute truth, etc., by definition, these people are making judgments all the time. It's impossible not to. Because of the way God made us. But not only is that true, but what we have clearly seen, God, that is the Bible, clearly calls us to discern between right and wrong doctrine. Right and wrong actions. What is morally good or immoral. To do that, not only for ourselves, but concerning others. Now, in our personal relationships, in your family, in society, those outside the church, and within the church, in our personal relationship with others, how we deal with others. That is, the spirit in which we do this kind of discerning in judgment is really, really important to our souls. And that is the essence of what Jesus is getting at when he says, to his disciples, judge not, lest you be judged.
Condemn not lest you be condemned. We're going to see it more fully in its context next week. But in other words, it is very clear that Jesus is not prohibiting all judging and critical discernment. But He's saying we must be extremely careful as we go about it. The temptation to be sinfully judgmental of the other is real. And it is dangerous to our souls. See, it's one thing, as Jesus said, to judge rightly or with an appropriate judgment. It's another thing to even make accurate Assessments and go about that process in relationship with others in a self-righteous way. In a way that somehow thinks it itself above the other. Beyond that temptation. Instead of with brokenness and fear and trembling and meaning but for the grace. Of God. Go I. Jesus, we'll see next week. He's prohibiting. When you make judgment, just be careful. Everything in life does not need to be judged. There would be no more marriages. But many things do. Lovingly. And as we do, He's saying... Don't be hypercritical in the way you do it. There is a destructive kind of counsel, a destructive kind of criticism. It doesn't, in the long run, seek edification. It's not conducive to edification, but it tears down the other person. That that type of thing that glories in, I see another. I got a brother. I got gotcha. you. Spitting everywhere. Okay. Now Jesus is condemning the kind of judging that times we all know so well when we afflict on each other, and deep down, here's the motivation: feels so good to see myself right now in comparison with the other. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, said it this way, quote, The fact of the matter is that we are not really concerned about helping this other person. We are interested only in condemning him We pretend to have this great interest. We pretend that we are very distressed at finding this blemish in his or her life. But in reality, as our Lord has already shown us, we are really glad to discover it. And so, Jesus is not saying, do not lovingly hold each other accountable particularly in the church but he's saying don't judge harshly instead relate to the reality that we're all sinners being sanctified and do it with fear and trembling see I th- I can relate to this it's just so just uh, One writer puts it this way. Just hear and see if you don't relate. How sometimes it's amazing how we judge ourselves so lightly (laughs) and others so quickly or harshly. Quote, We are all prone to excuse our own faults and to magnify the faults of others. You know how it goes. I'm quiet. You're unassertive. He's a wimp. I'm concerned. You're 
curious. He's nosy. I'm thrifty. You're a bit tight. He's cheap. I drive with the flow of the traffic. You go over the speed limit. He's reckless. As I close today, let's leave here today with the flow of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain so far. From the beginning up to judge not. The way I want to do that is I'm going to paraphrase the flow very concisely of what Jesus' one sermon so far is saying to us. Blessed are you, my disciples. Believer, blessed are you that your eyes have been opened, bringing to you saving faith. Yes, you have been saved from eternal judgment that your sins deserved. So go on now. And in this world, love your enemies who sin against you. Be merciful to those who are sinning against you. Just as your Father in Christ has been and is merciful to you. In other words, don't judge others with a spirit of Superiority, but with brokenness, with love, with a merciful, tender heart when you must go about making evaluation for the sake of your brother or sister. Let's pray. Lord, may You cause us all the more to come to grips with Your loving command to not judge others and condemn others in any way that is outside of Your command to love our enemies and to be merciful as you were merciful. But may we be bold to make discernment. May we love each other even within the body of Christ. May we plead with each other as one broken sinner who is enjoying the mercy of God through Christ. May we approach more readily, more tenderly each other that way to the purification of our souls and to the glory of Your name and to the exhibition of Your mercy that doesn't deny objective truth, that doesn't deny the glorious commands of faith, but that together we covet the purging and the working and the molding of Your Spirit in us, Your people, to the glory of Jesus.